I'm Silas Farley. I'm a dancer with New York City Ballet, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. In this episode, we will delve into George Balanchine's Firebird. Mr. B made this ballet in 1949, and it's still a beloved piece in the repertory. Firebird already had a rich history when Balanchine came to make his version of it. The ballet's original production had been part of the 1910 season of Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. This Firebird was the first intentionally Russian ballet. The storyline was called together from Alexander Afanasyev's Anthology of Folk Tales, it combines stories about two iconic characters from Russian folklore, the magical firebird and an archetypal antagonist named Kashe. Diaghilev chose Mikhail Fokin as the ballet's choreographer, and for the music, Diaghilev commissioned a score from a then-unknown young composer, Igor Stravinsky. <laughs> The ballet was a sensation, due in large part to its breathtaking score and the performance of the ballerina Tamara Karsavina in the title role. Balanchine choreographed his Firebird as a vehicle for the Native American ballerina Maria Talchief, who was his wife at the time. Talchief triumphed, and the ballet proved to be City Ballet's first great popular success. Here's how Talchief summarized the ballet's plot in her memoir. Prince Ivan captures the mysterious firebird who gives him a magic feather so he'll release her. He can use this feather to call her whenever he's in danger. Ivan falls in love with the Tsarevna, a princess, who becomes imprisoned by the monster Kashe. Using the feather, Ivan summons the firebird who helps him kill Kashe. The marriage of Ivan and the Tsarevna is celebrated with a grand processional. The city ballet Firebird is visually stunning, with set and costume designs by Marc Chagall. Those costume designs were masterfully executed by Barbara Karinska, who also designed Maria Talchief's original tutu. Balanchine loved these Firebird designs. He would go on to revise the ballet three times, in 1970 for Gelsey Kirkland, in 1972 for Karen von Araldingen, and in 1980 for Kira Nichols. In each new iteration, his focus shifted further away from the choreography and more towards the designs and how they related to the music. In describing his revisions to the ballet, he said, Most important is the music accompanying Chagall, Chagall and Stravinsky. You're not supposed to do anything. Just let the costumes flow. In 1985, after Mr. B had passed away, Jerome Robbins had the 1949 choreography of the ballet restored. The dancer chosen to fill Maria Talchief's shoes was Meryl Ashley. Meryl was one of City Ballet's most extraordinary ballerinas. Over the course of her 31-year career with the company, she danced principal parts in the lion's share of the repertory and originated leads in ballets by Jerome Robbins, Peter Martins, and George Balanchine perhaps most notably the virtuoso role Balanchine made for her in Ballo della Regina. I recently sat down with Meryl to talk about her multidimensional experience with Balanchine's Firebird. 
Meryl, Ashley, it is such a delight to have you on the Hear the Dance podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be part of it. What was your first exposure to Balanchine's Ballet Firebird? I think my first exposure was when um, my parents took me to Jacob's Pillow and Maria Tallchief uh, danced just the, the opening solo and the pas de deux. I think... I think I saw that. Mm. You know, I was so young that I can't swear to it. But somehow that memory is in there somewhere. And the pictures of her doing that, um, you know, it sparked a memory in me. Like I'd seen it. So Mm. I think that's when it was. That's fantastic to have seen the originator. Oh, my word. I wish I had appreciated it more. I'm sure I was spellbound. You know, but at that point, ballet, any ballet made me spellbound. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I'm sure Maria had cast a spell in one way or another. When you joined the company, you had the chance to see some of the other great firebirds, Melissa Hayden and Violet Verdi. What was your impression of their interpretations of the role? Oh, they were they were incredible. I think, um, I mean, they both were quite different, as always happens, you know, different personalities, different physiques produce different um, performances. Melissa had these enormously long arms and she used them so beautifully and somehow in Firebird that was particularly effective you know the wings and 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 somehow the the shape she could make because of the length of them was they were extraordinary and she was incredibly strong technically and uh, and always a dramatic dancer so you know she seemed like the firebird to me and Violette was different she was uh, seemed more exotic she always had this fantastically elaborate makeup that she wore and it was always you know red and I don't know it was just kind of just the look of her standing there was was amazing and she was so musical and so her phrasing and the little sharp movements and things like that were um, you know it was different from Melissa she was sharp too but somehow Violette brought her that unbelievable musicality that she had to it and uh, it was still a magical bird but a very different kind of bird. What are some of your memories from dancing in the court of ballet of this piece because you were a monster. I was a monster it's sort of one of the first things you do when you get in the company Uh you're a firebird monster and I had uh, one funny little occurrence. It was horrifying to me at the moment but this um, the, the costumes were quite different from what you would see now and I had this kind of wire curly tail and I was supposed to saute onto the stage from the front wing by the stage manager's desk and there's a telephone there with a long, quite a long curly wire and my the two wires got married <laughs> and I didn't know it and I sautéed out taking the telephone cord with me and I got a boomerang back into the wing I'm like, oh dear. <laughs> it, so that was a, one of those, you know, funniest moments it wasn't very funny to me (laughs) right right (laughs) unforgettable yes unforgettable Unforgettable. for sure and when mr balanchine revised the ballet in 1972 for the stravinsky festival you were one of the maidens i was one of the maidens one of the princesses one of the blue maidens yes could you talk with us a little bit about that experience well uh yeah i can't honestly swear i was a princess in the earlier version but i always remember looking at the dance and thinking it didn't wasn't captivating to me somehow, and when he choreographed it in re-choreographed it in 1972, I began. Uh, partly, I was older. I understood more. Um, I began to see all the Russian influences, and that it was really about Russian folk dance, 
more than it was about ballet, ballet. And uh, the costumes were, to me, much more Russian. The headpieces were, were more Russian. And just some of the movements, the tilting of the head, the, um, the kind of the chugging along the floor with angled, you know, where your arms were. I suddenly realized this is Balanchine bringing his heritage of Russian culture and folk dance. And, you know, he's... Uh, he was obviously very familiar with it. I mean, incorporating ballet in it, you know, Pique Arabesque, it was not Russian folk dance, but it was on point, and, you know, but it, it, I understood finally that it was, um, it was Russian, mm. as was so much of the, the rest of the ballet, too. Were there any particular steps that he was insistent about with the princesses? Well, a common gesture throughout the ballet is the way you bow. There's a Russian bow where you bring your arm up to your opposite shoulder, and then the arm is kind of stiff as you as you bow and you your body goes quite low and he he kept showing that it wasn't um you know it had a a grandeur to it and a a regality to it um somehow and i remember it was important to him mm-hmm. uh and there was another place near the end of the ballet uh, when the scrim comes down, it's right before the big tableau at the end, and the girls and their princes were walking out in front of the scrim, and he said, you have to walk like pregnant women with your pelvis and your, you know, kind of thrust forward, your body, your stomach thrust forward, and your hand was trailing behind you, and your head was to the side. And, and again, I think that was a, a, a very Russian dance gesture. And, but his way of getting us to do it was to say, walk like a pregnant lady, which I'm sure is not what the Russians feel it is, but, but that's how he got us to do it. He got the point across. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's interesting that Mr. Balanchine took the piece through so many different iterations. He did that original version in 1949 for Maria Talchief with the short red tutu and the sparkling virtuosic choreography, and that's what Melissa Hayden would have danced and Violet Verdi would right. have danced. And then... Later, he revised the piece for Gelsie Kirkland. Could you talk to us about what that Gelsie Kirkland version looked like? Gelsie was amazing. Uh, she was an amazing dancer. She, I grew up in this ballet school with her, and, and, you know, she just kind of leapfrogged over me. Um, and she was she had beautiful technique, and Balanchine adored her, and or she was very quick and strong and because she was small he I think he he made the choreography very different as a you know kind of a different kind of firebird that maybe Maria would have sparked in his mind the problem was that the costume had little wings on near her waist which starts limiting what you can do partnering wise and he cast her with Jacques D'Amboise who was this big you know, much bigger than than Gelsey. When he danced with her, it was his big presence over this little tiny bird, and so it was a you know it was a a new idea about it, but it was very valid. Mm. So his next iteration was because we had new costume designs, uh, the sets, you know, everything seemed new, and he seemed to get the idea that the firebird should look the same as the bird on this front scrim that you see when the curtain goes up, which meant she had huge wings, huge. And talk about not being able to 
you know, to dance with those wings on and be partnered with those wings on. I mean, he gave himself a very difficult choreographic challenge because that really limited what was possible. But it seems like he had, again, changed his whole idea that it was more about the Chagall designs. It was a more of a showpiece, not, a, not so much about dancing and ballet, but about Russia and Chagall and the beauty and the mystery of that. Um, and so that's, you know, that was his next idea. You had a wonderful memory of your costume as one of the princesses in that oh. version of Firebird. The costumes were incredible. I was one of the blue girls. There were sort of gold girls and white girls and I, in blue. And I was a blue girl. Karinska, who was known for making a lot of the decorations that were on the costume, crocheted many of the decorations that were on that costume. And you'd look down and you'd just see all this hand-done work everywhere, all over the costume. They were just incredible. And blue's kind of my favorite color, so I was very happy I was a blue girl. And it's almost like she was to costume design what Balanchine was to the choreography, that she was so invested in the details. Absolutely, she was. And, I mean, she was known for that, you know, and she was whimsical, too. You know, I, I think people know about the, uh, her putting the picture in the Spanish costumes in Nutcracker. What Meryl mentions here may be new to some listeners, and it's a charming tidbit. In Karinska's designs for the Spanish hot chocolate divertisement in Balanchine's Nutcracker, there is a small cameo photograph of George Balanchine on the front center of the lead woman's bodice, and there's a similar photo of Lincoln Kirstein on the bodices of the four corps de ballet ladies. Now back to more on Karinska's costumes. And I also remember uh, other costumes in the production. The prince's jacket is fantastic. And the red dress in the final tableau is just a magical, magical costume. She brought dimension into it. It's not just a flat panel. I used to look at that costume and just think that it must have been really heavy to wear, but it was a magnificent piece of work, just magnificent. Mm -hmm. The 1972 revision of the piece was part of the Stravinsky Festival. Right. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Nobody believed that we'd be able to do as many ballets as Balanchine decided what were going to be done. And we knew how important it was to him. And uh, it was the creative juices of everybody were flowing, and his in particular. And he had, was kind of coming out of a difficult period uh, where he hadn't choreographed much and he hadn't been in good mood. So to see him energized and working and and then you saw the ballets that he did, my lord, and they were, I mean, masterpieces, several of them. Yeah. I mean, all done and he, you know, we were working, the schedule was so impossible and there was a funny thing um, right at the, near the end of the rehearsal period, right before everything started, Frank Bunsian, who was actually the original in Prince and the Firebird, uh, he was had a very good sense of humor and he took an old Firebird skirt that was being used as a practice skirt and a skeleton and hung it on the bar backstage and said, this is a New York City ballet dancer and the Stravinsky Festival because we were all just dead tired. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> Mr. B made yet another iteration of the piece in 1980 for Kira Nichols. Right. And how did that relate to the previous versions? He gave himself another challenge because she had this, I think the wing, I can't really remember, but the big wings were gone, but he gave her a big train, gold train, 
and there again, what you know, it restricted what she could do. And I don't know what his. I think he wanted to do something for Kira, and but why it was that I don't know. I I don't know what his motivation was really. Mm. But again, it just made it more spectacle, more about the costumes and the the Russian characters than it did about ballet. Which is so unusual for Balanchine <coughs> because he's always the choreographer. Even when he tells a story, he's telling it through the movements. Right. His Midsummer Night's Dream, his Nutcracker, all the stories told through steps. So to have him do a ballet that's really like an art exhibition right. brought to right. life is very exactly. unusual. That's a good description. Understandable because it's Chagall, some of the greatest artwork ever. But that said, very unusual for him to not highlight the yeah. dancing. Yes, it and, was. And you really wanted to see the dancing. I wanted you had to see the dancing. The I had, Firebird. you know, my memory of Firebird was this exciting solo and an unusual pas de deux that ended with that kind of wiggly movement that I found intriguing. And, you know, that to me was Firebird. Mm-hmm. And I missed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it came back and then eventually. It came back. <laughs> and I'd love to talk a little bit about that. In 1985, the company revived the piece, and Jerome Robbins had that original Firebird choreography restored, and you were the Firebird. I was the Firebird, um, which was thrilling in many ways, but also uh, a bit um, daunting because I, I wanted to live up to the tradition and the you know make it make it as theatrical and and inspiring as as Maria had um, and it was also difficult because Francisco Muncian was there helping he, the choreography especially in the pas de deux, but the solo too I mean he'd seen it so many times I guess but Jerry Robbins had some other ideas or memories that were slightly different and so I was getting kind of conflicting opinions about what the step was or how it should be done and I didn't know who to listen to really you know and I couldn't I don't know it was a, kind of a, a difficult situation to be in and so I did the best I could and tried to you know I just kept feeling if I could just ask Mr. Balanchine one or two questions this would all kind of get clear but obviously I couldn't do that he wasn't with us anymore and so I had to use my own Whatever I'd learned from him and, and what suited my body and what suited my idea of, the, of what a firebird is and try and, you know, mix those, mine, Frank Muncian's and Jerry Robbins all together and kind of come up with a, an idea, a way of doing it. Mm. It's interesting you talk about how you felt the weight of the ballerinas who'd come before you in this role when you finally stepped into it, Meryl. And if it's any encouragement, Maria Talchi felt similarly overwhelmed when Mr. B first made the role for her because she knew people had the memory of Tamara Karsavana, the original from 1910 in their minds, and they had the memory of Alicia Markova in the more recent version that was being done in the States at that time. And only a few weeks before the premiere of Mr. B's Firebird in 1949, the New York City ballet-going audience had just seen the Sadler's Wells Ballet, what became the Royal Ballet. They'd just made their debut in New York with Margot Fontaine in all her glory as Aurora. So Maria felt the weight of all of those layers as she was going into her first performances and... It ended up being a triumph, but she couldn't have known that going into it. So <laughs> she certainly <laughs> rose to the occasion. <laughs> yeah, she rose to the occasion. She rose to the occasion. And interestingly, years later, when she set the ballet for her company in Chicago, Mr. B came out to see it, and he told Maria's daughter, Elise, you know, dear, 
your mother was so great in this ballet and it was the company's first great success. And Maria remembered that that was the first time that Mr. B had ever said anything nice about her dancing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he, but, he didn't share compliments very much. He might have been pleased, but he didn't tell you. <laughs> mm, mm. What memories do you have of the choreography of this ballet? Parts that were particularly challenging, parts that were enjoyable? Well, it's a role that has lots of jumping in it, more than a lot of uh, female roles that he choreographed um, later. Early, early Balanchine ballets like Minka's Pas de Trois, had a lot of jumping, very, I mean, jumping, 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 jumping. But as years went on, he got more involved in point work and intricate petit allegro. And um, so we didn't, I mean, we certainly jumped. But the Firebird solo is a lot of jumping. It's from an era when he made everybody jump. And so that was a challenge. And the f one of the very first steps is a, a jump that was described to me as a grand jeté going forward. And then in midair, you flip and try and travel in the opposite direction. Well, I just thought, how is that possible? I, how is that possible? And so already the very first step was this enormous challenge and you know i i certainly never felt i could travel in two directions <laughs> within one step but you know i tried to make the change dynamic and tried to make it in the air and then there was another turning step on a diagonal where i was supposed to do like step step to fourth position uh, with my back sort of to the audience and stop in fourth position freeze for a moment and then do a double pirouette uh and it was a series of that. Well, again, it just almost seemed impossible, and I kept thinking, this doesn't seem like a step Mr. B would give. I just, it didn't seem right to me, and yet that's what they were insisting I do, so I made the effort to do it, but I don't know that it ever showed that I, that's, you know, because if you really stop, then especially at the tempo of the music, you know, to stop, if you have then time, maybe you can then regenerate the energy, but at the tempo it was, it was just a split second to stop and then try and get the turn in. And, and then there was a light right in my eyes on that diagonal, which made it even harder. But I loved, I actually loved this little Cisson Batu step. I just, I just loved that. And for the listeners, the Cisson Batu is like you've started in fifth position in plie and you jump and you thread your legs past each other and then open them before landing. And it's a tricky little step. It's a tricky little step. But it gives it a little sparkling moment. Right. And landing in the, a big kind of overcrossed fourth was also, there was something that, I don't know what, why I like that so much, but it seemed like, you know, tight, tight, wide, sharp. I don't know, close everything, open, close. I, I don't know, I just liked it. And it fit the music, and it was a, a powerful step. And yet, because of the starting and stopping, and it seemed bird-like in, in its change of uh, dynamics. Uh, so I liked it. Were there any favorite or uh, unique moments you loved in the pas de deux? I loved the end of the pas de deux, where it's kind of hard to describe it, but he's supporting you um, with his arms under your armpits, and you kind of wiggle and bend your knees as you're going down and then kind of come back up. And it just was sensual and unusual and beautiful and 
matched the music so well. I don't know. I liked it. It was, you know, it's not the normal step you do in a ballet. So it was very distinctive for Firebird. And in that short ballet, you have such a dynamic range. You go from the Quicksilver brilliance of the solo immediately into this long sinewy pas de deux. And you come back later after the monsters and the wizard have been defeated and you dance this berceuse. Could you right. talk about that solo? Well, the berceuse was a huge challenge for me. Uh, first of all, that was not, um, you know, I, I excelled at the quick stuff, the dynamic stuff, and the quiet stuff was harder for me. Um, so right away, I was already in, in my challenged zone, you know. And when I learned the, the ballet, there was a step walking back on point, bending my body side to side, that I found just unbelievably difficult. I felt so unstable, I, and I shed more tears over those walks on point than uh, I should have, I guess. I don't know, but I shed a lot of tears because I just couldn't make myself do it. And it seemed like it was so silly that I couldn't do these walks on point. But I couldn't. And um, later, many years later, I happened to see a clip of Maria on from maybe Bell Telephone Hour or something like that, some really old TV program. And she was dancing the berceuse, and it came to those walks on point. And she did something really simple that I could have done with no problem. And I thought, oh, this is, th it was an example of how things get distorted or changed, not on purpose, but somehow it got changed and it went from being a simple effective but you know basically simple walking backwards on point with passes to this step that was impossible on point maybe on half point it was not impossible but on point it was impossible for mm. me and others when i coached it later everybody had trouble there and uh, so mm. <laughs> it's a precarious ballet yeah those little challenges woven the whole way through. And nobody, you know, and then there were other steps that were, everybody knew were hard, you know, the in the Berceuse there's this big, slow, arabesque turn, which in and of itself is hard, but then you're not supposed to come down before you start boring quickly in a circle, in a, just on, in place in a circle. And you get such force when you close your leg First of all, to, to balance and be slow in arabesque With is hard. With one leg up behind But then you. When you, as you close your leg to get on two feet, it gives you force. And the force makes it then you're kind of staggering around in a circle. It's, it's beautiful when it works. It's thrilling when it works. Mm. But when it doesn't work, it's obvious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's going to be so interesting for all of the listeners when you come see Firebird this season at New York City Ballet to, to know a little bit more from the inside just how harrowing this role is. And uh, it really does stand out in the context of the whole ballet because there really isn't all that much dancing other than what the Firebird does. Yes. So she really carries the weight of the ballet dramatically and choreographically. Right, right. She does. There's a wonderful moment in the monsters scene when the firebird arrives, having been called by Ivan, he uses the feather that she's given him to summon her in his distress. And you do this circuit of quick sodashas, like split leaps, all around the the circumference of the stage. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Oh, that well, it's just such a great moment. Um, it's a big, long circle, I'll tell you. By the time you've done, I don't know how many it takes to do it, but you wish the circle was smaller. <laughs> but um, it's, it's such an effective moment, and it shows so clearly the power and the dynamism of the Firebird 
you know, and it's it's a really magical moment. When I was coaching it um, later, there was a, uh, there were a bunch of injuries, and we had to throw Ashley Bowder into the role, and she had this incredible jump, and when she did that circle for the first time in rehearsal, we all just were. Our mouths were open. It was so incredible. She was so high off the floor. And her legs were just going a mile a minute, you know. And it was just, it was truly took our breaths away. It mm-hmm. really was astounding. There's a wonderful description of how you danced this role, Meryl. And I know that it felt overwhelming, but the effect of what you accomplished in this role was something extraordinary. Jack Anderson in the New York Times wrote this about your interpretation in 1990. She was a commanding, even an awesome presence. It was easy to imagine that she was in control of magical powers. Dancing with remarkable quickness, Miss Ashley suggested that the firebird hated to touch the earth and would soon be blazing into the heavens. There was a great strength in her upper body, and when she moved her arms, they appeared to create storms in the air about her. <laughs> well, that's very nice. It, You know, I was never that confident in the role, partly because of the way it evolved in the beginning. And, uh, and it was sort of the first role I did with a major role that I did um, without Mr. B around. So that he saw what I was really hoping to portray um, is is very gratifying. Mm. And you had combined some of the very qualities that had moved you in previous ballerinas' interpretations. I love how he talked about the use of your arms creating storms in the air about her and uh, made me think about how you were so taken by the way Melissa Hayden used her arm, right. arms in the role. And then you, you, uh, you know, I think I was affected too by Balanchine wanting to put these big wings on, on the firebird. That The wings were clearly important, you know, and uh, you had... You know, we all see swan lake arms. Well, firebird arms somehow had to be different because she's not a swan. She's something else. We don't know. Who knows what a firebird is, how big it is or whatever. So you had to create. I wanted to create some kind of power through my arms and distinctive way of using them that wasn't reminiscent of swan lake. And then he gives this wonderful line. Miss Ashley suggested that the firebird hated to touch the earth. (laughs) <laughs> and would soon be blazing into the heavens. Mm-hmm. And that emphasis on your allegro technique. And by this time, the New York City Ballet audience already knew your virtuosic allegro technique. And I can only imagine that that was a huge reason why Jerome Robbins thought you'd be perfect for the role of the Firebird. When Mr. Balanchine choreographed Ballo della Regina for you, this is how Lincoln Kirstein described your performance in that. He said, She was now revealed as a fantastic mistress of Allegro, moving with more speed, cutting her profiles with greater diamond-edged sharpness, intensity, precision, and strength than almost any dancer within memory. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because in talking with some of the other dancers who were in the company with you, they noticed how Mr. B really extended the technique through how he worked with you in particular. And could you take us into Mr. B's classroom for a moment and talk to us a little bit about how he extended technique and specifically how he worked with you on jumping, which became such a key feature of your career and also of this role of the Firebird in particular? Well, jumping, um, you know, in the school I felt I had a, a good jump. Uh, but when I was with Mr. B in class, he was very sensitive and aware of how you put your foot down on the floor before you took off and how you landed. 
And I don't think I was aware of that. I was just trying to get momentum and take off and stay in the air as long as I could. And so the process of learning how to be, place my foot carefully and still find a way to create power that would propel me into the air was it took a while. So I, in a way, I kind of lost my jump for a while. Um, at least the height disappeared. Um, but then eventually, working on it, I, I got... I began to understand how that the placement of the foot and the, the care and where the weight was and the, the timing of all that could actually give you more power. And then you had to land nicely, too, <laughs> which is another element. But, um, but somehow the more I found the more careful I was, was how, with how I took off, the more care I was able to land with. It was, they were, it was like equal parts. Mm-hmm. And the jump was in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> and he talked about what you could and couldn't do with your arms when you were jumping, too. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, clearly you use your arms when you jump. They help you, but they, he didn't want stiff arms, and he didn't want them looking like they were trying to help you. They, they still needed to be soft and graceful and, and beautiful all the time. You, you couldn't, it couldn't show that they were helping you. They were, but you had to hide it. So that was just another element that you had to incorporate. And then with the landings, he would say, he had hit some ways of describing how you should land. Land like a pussycat, you know, because he wanted to be soundless. And also the landing is really the beginning of the next step. It's not an ending. It's the beginning of the next thing you're going to do. And uh, once you acquire that skill, you realize how helpful it is. It really does help you into the next thing, and you can use the energy and the momentum. Um, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard, especially from big jumps to mm-hmm. land softly. But so beautiful. Oh, it makes such a difference. It makes such a difference. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that, I mean, he was misconstrued a lot uh, with jumping because he said, don't put your heels down. But, and then people started thinking, oh, that's j- sort of jumping on half point. And, and that's not it at all. It was, don't make noise. And if you plie uh, and you can't keep your heel on the floor anymore, but you need more power, just like if you were doing a, a big grand plie in the beginning of class, your heels come off the floor, but your tendons are stretched. Well, you can continue into your plie and lift your heel as long as you've gone to the full extension of your ability and and get more power mm. and that he advocated a lot mm. but again he was he was misconstrued by saying don't keep your heels down and it's too bad because he was really talking about going to the depth of plie and beyond, and beyond. not just arbitrarily picking right. the heels up off the ground exactly exactly in your wonderful 1984 memoir, Dancing for Balanchine, this is how you described this dynamic of working on jumping with Mr. B. You wrote, in effect, Balanchine took my jump away from me and wouldn't let me have it back until I mastered a more refined form. Yeah, well, that's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. Now, Meryl, after you retired from the stage in 1997, you then served as the teaching associate for New York City Ballet. And in that role, you taught the company and you also coached a whole array of roles in the repertory, including the Firebird. What was that experience like to then teach this iconic role of the Firebird to the next generation of dancers? I found it daunting. Once again, I found it daunting because um, I felt less secure about uh, what it really was supposed to be, one. 
And two, I didn't want to impose my interpretation on it. I, I wanted people to find it. Um, I wanted to help them technically so that they could do that, come to their own interpretation. You taught the role to a series of ballerinas. You taught it to Alexander Ancinelli and to Ashley Bowder and others. And you had been mentored by older dancers in New York City Ballet when you were a dancer. So you'd had some of the benefits of a, a, an experienced performer guiding, helping you. Could you talk a little bit about that? In the early days, uh, in being in the company, uh, the principal dancers were the ones, first of all, that taught the roles to the next generation. You got it straight from the person who was, had been dancing it. Uh, I also had a lot of help from Jacques D'Amboise because he took me uh, out on, uh, during the layoff periods with the company, which were frequent then, um, he would take lecture demonstrations around, and so I would dance a lot of things that I wouldn't have an opportunity to dance in the company. Um, with him, and he would coach me in it, and, you know, we'd all do bar together, and, and he really explained a lot of things um, and was insistent about certain things that Balanchine was talking about in class or, or insisting on in class, but not really explaining in words, or he didn't have the time to give individual attention often. So with Jacques and doing a specific ballet, um, you know, I got to practice some of these special things or, you know, ideas that were kind of there but not instilled in me yet. And Jacques was very insistent about them, and so he helped me a lot in that regard. And uh, I certainly wanted to do that for the generation that came after me. And I, I do know that people um, watched me a lot, and Balanchine would say, you know, when he couldn't describe or he didn't have time, uh, you know, well, watch Meryl, watch Meryl. Um, so, so that was nice. Um, and I, I did try and did, um, you know, I think there were some people that I, I did mentor and, um, and I, I hope I made a difference. You definitely have. One of the great gifts that you've given to the generation after you is something called the Balanchine Essays that mm -hmm. you worked on with SAB teacher Suki Shorer. Could you share with us a little bit about that project? Well, yes, Suki and I both felt when Balanchine died that somehow we needed to record everything that we remembered about his teaching because we all know memories fade and we all know memories, um, you know, people had already begun misconstruing some of the things he said. And we finally came up with the idea of of showing the technique and the dancing segments of Balanchine's choreography that showed how he used these steps. Um, and it was a long process, but we really did try and preserve it. And I think it's, um, you know, Suki and I agreed basically on everything. And we were from very different eras, and yet we, were, we felt the same thing. So I'm very grateful that we did that, and I hope it's proving useful to the current generations it and generations is. to come. It certainly is. I've studied those videos and watched them with friends, and they're a real treasure. And as time goes on, they will be shown to be uh, a real asset to our whole field. Meryl, you also have the privilege of teaching Mr. Balanchine's ballets all around the world and coaching them. And could you share with us a little bit about what it's like to um, share his aesthetic, especially in places where the dancers don't come from a Balanchine training? Uh, it, 
is a huge responsibility, but also it's tremendously gratifying, really. Well, I've had two experiences, one in Cuba where they've had no exposure. I mean, talk about no exposure to Balanchine, which was quite something. And the eagerness and the revelation, you know, that these dancers saw and felt and they felt the pleasure of doing his choreography uh, along with the challenge of it. Um, it it was extraordinary, really. And going to Russia, to Bolshoi, to, to do jewels, I, um, I taught diamonds to the principals there. And that, too, was, you know, I mean, they have their own, such strong traditions there. But to see the connection between Mr. B's Imperial Russian training, their training, and then diamonds, and to see them adapt and absorb what maybe was not so familiar, but somehow instinctively they they understood it and they wanted it. And they wanted to represent, you know, they wanted to change and be right in a balancing ballet. Mm-hmm. And while they still looked like, uh, you know, they didn't look like an American dancer, they were gorgeous. Mm-hmm. A couple of the couples there were just sublime. Mm-hmm. So that was, it's, it's very gratifying, yeah. you know, and to feel that you're really... Uh, spreading, you know, I hope, I feel I'm spreading the right knowledge about Balanchine and, and getting them to look, to dance the ballets in a way that he would like. It's, it, it's hard, but um, it's kind of a, an inspiring thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for pouring your life out to do this work, and thank you for sharing your time and your insights with us on My the pleasure. Dance podcast. Thank you so much, Silas. about Merrill Ashley and Balanchine's Firebird, please consult the reading list that can be found in the notes for this podcast episode. To stay up to date on all City Ballet podcast episode releases, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. All of us here at City Ballet hope to see you soon in the theater, so head over to nycballet.com to have a look at the season. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance.